0: Good to see those kids excited to go. We'll miss you. All right. Well, welcome again to Oasis Church. So glad that you're all here with us this morning. I've seen some new faces, and we've got some visitors here this morning. So uh, welcome to everyone. Uh, Just ask the deacons and deaconesses to be on the lookout. If we see some new faces, we get them a welcome bag. Thank you. All right, well... We'll continue in our um, series on Deuteronomy this morning. And the message this morning is titled, The God of the Wilderness. Before we get into Deuteronomy chapter 2, for the benefit of those who haven't been here and the benefit of those of you who forgot already what we talked about last week, uh, I'll give a short recap of where we're at. So, uh, Deuteronomy starts out with Moses retelling the history of the beginnings of Israel's time in the wilderness. And so he's talking to the youngest, the generation that survived. Remember the older generation that did not go into the promised land. Uh, they had to die off before the new generation could go in. And so Moses is retelling uh, part of the history of the time in the, in the wilderness. So Israel had refused to enter the land even after witnessing all these miracles, uh, they still didn't seem to trust God would deliver the promised land to them. And so there is a consequence. Uh, The consequence was that none of the people that were basically of fighting age, which most scholars think is uh, ages 20 and up at the time, uh, anyone that was 20 and up that said, we're not going in, uh, did not get to see the promised land. In other words, they, they would die off, and then once they had died off, then the uh, new generation could come in. So uh, I feel like I'm ringing a little bit, so I don't know what's going on there. But, um, so that was the consequence. Um, and then they said, okay, well, okay, we'll obey, we'll obey. We'll go up and we'll fight. And God's response was, it's too late. Don't go up now to fight. He said, I won't be with you. But they go anyway. And they're beaten by the Amorites. Remember, the, it says they chase them but like a swarm of bees would chase. And then they wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen. And that was the cost of their rebellion. And ultimately, as we concluded last week we saw that the reason that their grief did not really get God's sympathy was it was a worldly grief, not a godly grief. And we pointed to uh, where Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so that was our lesson last week that we were reflecting on is do we have a godly grief that leads us to repentance and then salvation without regret? Or is our grief just because we got something we did and caught consequences that we didn't like and we would rather have the godly sorrow? So this morning, we're continuing where Moses is giving the narrative, and we're going to learn more about the wanderings, and we're going to cover another bigger chunk of scripture from uh, Deuteronomy chapter, one, uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 1 and through verse 25. And in case you sound, some of it sounds familiar to you, a lot of this narrative is also um, included in the book of Numbers. Uh, So this is kind of a recap that Moses is giving, um, but a lot of the uh, more extended um, accounts of it could be found in, in the book of Numbers. So I'll read it, and then we'll get into it. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir, Then the Lord said to me, "'You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. "'Turn northward and command the people, "'you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, "'the people of Esau who live in Seir, "'and they will be afraid of you. "'So be very careful. "'Do not contend with them, "'for I will not give you any of their land, "'no, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on.' Because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat. And you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road to Elath from Elath and Izion Giber. Now, just as a bit of trivia, the word Elath there is a city they're talking about. It meant palm grove. So it's been a long time that people have been naming their cities after palms. Isn't that something? Okay, continuing on. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, "Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given our to the people of Lot for a possession." The Emim formerly lived there, a people of great and many, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they were also counted as Rephaim. But the Moabites called them Emim the Horites also lived in Seir formerly but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession which the Lord gave to them now rise up and go over the brook Zared so we went over the brook Zared and from the time of our and the time from our leaving Kadesh-Barnea until we crossed the brook Zared was 38 years until the entire generation that is the men of war had perished from the camp As the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So, as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zemzumin, the, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau, who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, The Kaftorim who came up from Kaftor destroyed them and settled in their place. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the tread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, and you shall hear the report of you and tremble and be in anguish because of you. All right, there's a lot of stuff in there. Whoo, right? That's a, quite a passage. As I was studying this passage to preach it to you this morning, I began to regret that I started the book of Deuteronomy. It was <laughs> really something. I was like, what am I going to do with this? But there is lessons to be found in all of it. And, it's, and we're going to try to get those out. So let's go back for a moment to those first four verses. We turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. The Lord said to me, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you, so be careful. So you've been traveling around this mountain long enough. Now We saw a similar phrase to this in chapter 1, verse 6. There God said, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. Do you Remember that? So in Moses' narrative, he's now describing how God had told them to pass through the territory of Esau. And it says that the Esau, the people of Esau will be afraid of the Israelites. And so they're to be careful. And then in verse 5, it says, Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land, not even as much to put the sole of the foot to tread on. Because... I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession, God says. So God is faithful is one of the big lessons from our passage this morning. He's not only faithful to Israel, he's faithful to the Edomites. That is the descendants of Esau. You remember Esau, he gave up his birthright, but still God provided for his descendants. The command not to contend with Esau's people was not only because of God's provision to them, but also as a warning of sorts to Israel. They were to trust God and the land he had given them and believe that it was a good land, as God had told them it would be. And because of this, they were not to covet other lands that they were to see. Not things that aren't theirs were not supposed to be Looked at by them as something they could maybe take. So, if you've ever done this, and I know all of you have, you've been at a restaurant, you've placed your order, and you're sitting there waiting and you're hungry, and you see the waiter coming with the big tray, right? And you're like, yay, the food's coming, and then they bring it to someone else's table. And it's easy to look over there and see, well, what did they get? What's the food that they're eating? and the other table probably got something different than what you ordered, and it's very tempting to look over there at that food because you don't have yours yet, and you're longing for something, even though you know your own plate's on its way eventually, and that food was specially ordered and made for you, still the temptation's there, isn't it? What's over there? Those fries look good. When God has promised us something good, and we wait for it, We're not to long for something other than that which he himself will provide. So the people are right off. They they can say, this land you're passing through, God is saying to them, that's not for you. That's for Esau. That's the land they got. But there's something better coming for you. So don't let your eyes wander. Don't begin to covet what the Edomites have. For one thing, it's been given to them. It's not yours. But besides that, God had something better for them. So instead of taking it by force or even taking from the land as they pass through, God says to pay for the water and food that they might use while they're there. And the reasoning God gives is that he's blessed Israel with many provisions. They had the means to purchase their own food. Do you remember when they left Egypt and they plundered the Egyptians? All the people gave them their jewelry and all this stuff. And also, when they were in the desert, even though they were wandering, their flocks increased, the Bible tells us. Their clothes didn't wear out. All of those things. So God had provided mightily for them, even though they were wandering because of their own disobedience. Now, if you were to look at the book of Numbers in chapter 20, we find that even though this was the command of God, that they were to go in and pay for their food and water as they went through, Uh, they were not allowed to go in. So let's look at Numbers chapter 20, starting at verse 18. It says, Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Obviously, God knew ahead of time that this is what was going to happen. He is sovereign. He is omniscient. But still, he had warned the Israelites that they were to pay their share in land that was not theirs. They were to pay for food and drink that they got. So he said in verse 6, back in Deuteronomy chapter 2, You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So they are to trust God for their provision. God is faithful even in dealing with unfaithful people. Thank God for that, right? John Maxwell writes about this. The people who had insulted God by not trusting him wanted for nothing. So even though they insulted God by not taking his promised land, he still provided for them. He gave them food, clothing, and protection. He knew their path in the wilderness, and for 40 years he took care of them. Moses continues to remind the people of the faithfulness of God. And then he mentions that they ended up not going into Seir, where the people of Esau were in verse 8. Um, and then we see people, the people turning towards another place, the place of the Moabites. And here they are told again, don't harass them, don't contend with them, because God had given R to the people of Lot, and we see that in verse nine. Now the Moabites are descendants of Lot. If you care to read more about that, it's in Genesis 19, the sordid tale of Lot's two daughters, and um, and we learn something in there about the narrative. Uh, of that whole story about the origins of these two people groups, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And so let's look at that for a moment. Uh, Genesis 19, starting at verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ammi. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So that's the origin of those two people groups. Just like Esau's people, lost descendants are also given a place to call their own. A place where the Israelites were not to contend with or covet after. And I'm not going to spend too much time in verses 10 to 12 here in chapter 2, but I want to give a quick explanation. There's all these other people groups that are named In this passage, and we can't spend all day on them, but uh, here's something from the Preacher's Commentary series. It says The Emim were giants whose name meant terrors or dreaded ones. The Horites were non Semitic people, that means non Israeli people, who lived in scattered groups in Palestine, Syria, and Mesopotamia. They occupied Seir before Esau drove them out. The explanatory notes in verses 10 through 12 leave the impression that no enemy is invincible. If the Moabites could drive out the people of Edom, who were great and numerous and tall, and if Esau's descendants could expel the Horites, then surely God could give Canaan to Israel, regardless of the opposition. God is faithful. Now let's continue on. Verse 13, now rise up. And go over the brook Zared. So we went over the brook Zared, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zared was 38 years until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So here again, we're reminded of this cost of disobedience, which was the main topic of our message last week. The time from leaving Kadesh Barnea until they crossed the brook Zered was 38 years. Now you might be thinking, I thought they wandered for 40 years. They did wander for 40 years. Uh, The total of wandering, in fact, was just five days short of 40 years from the time that the Bible records they left Egypt to the time they actually entered into the Promised Land. But here it says 38 years. That's not for the entire time of the journey. It's just for, as Moses says, from the time they left Kadesh Barnea until they crossed the brook Zered, That was 38 years. Now the older generation had died off. It kind of makes you wonder, since they had been told that once you all die off, the rest of them could go in, you wonder if these kids started to say, man, how long is this going to take? How's grandpa feeling today? You know? Uh, it's kind of like the ones that... Uh, can't wait to get their inheritance and they just kind of hope that the parents will die off soon you know. Um, but you, you know they have to have had that in their mind to some extent but, um, but now that they've all yet died off uh, Moses says they're going to cross the border of Moab and ironically they're, the ones that died off Moses refers to them as men of war which is what they should have been but instead they were men of comfort. They didn't want to risk their lives to take the land, the good land that God had given them. Continuing on in verse 16, So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession Because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzuman, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them, and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who lived in Seir. When he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them, and settled in their place even to this day. So remember the Moabites and the Ammonites, who were they? They were the descendants of Lot, okay? Um, and from the world, word biblical, sorry, the word biblical commentary, it says the legendary Anakin, not Anakin, okay, Star Wars people, we're not, not talking about Darth Vader here. Um, The legendary Anakim who occupied the land of Rephaim of the distant past were divided into subgroups that were displaced by the nations of Edom, Edom, Moab, Ammon, and Israel as ordained by Yahweh. The two Amorite kings that Moses defeated in the Transjordan, Sihon and Og, are also part of the larger picture. Og in particular is described as the last of the Rephaim. We'll see that when we get to chapter 3. The legendary stories of the Rephaim, displaced by the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, were used to shape the narrative traditions in Genesis. Israel and Edom are described here as Israel's brothers, the children of Esau. In the Genesis narrative, Jacob and Esau are presented from the outset as the nations of Israel and Edom. At the moment they were born to Isaac and Rebekah, Yahweh himself announced Two nations are in your womb and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the elder shall serve the younger. Some scholars also believe that the caftorum that are mentioned there in verse 23 were were Cretans or Greeks who had come over and conquered another people group called the Avon. So, I will, I'll give you all a quiz on this by Wednesday, see if you remember. <laughs> I won't even remember myself, maybe, I don't know. But here is something I will, might be able to quiz you on, and I hope you do remember. God is sovereign, and God is faithful. Okay, so even if you forget all of the other names of these people groups and all that history, remember that. God is sovereign, and God is faithful. He is faithful to his chosen people, Israel. Even in their unfaithfulness, he provided for them. He was faithful to Esau. He was faithful to Lot. Now, what can we learn from all of this? Well, Paul wrote that all of this happened as an example for us. And it was written down for an example. In scripture, as in life, we have both positive and negative examples. We all personally have people we don't want to be like right the negative example and we all hopefully have people we would like to be like and that's a positive example and in scripture we get tons and tons of both people we could aspire to be like and people that we maybe should try not to be like so here's what paul writes in first corinthians and we're going to kind of i'm going to read through this as as kind of a, a commentary on this passage we just read and i'll have a few things to say as well he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That is the Red Sea, the crossing. Uh, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. All right? That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's recalling. Paul Paul knows he's writing to some people who would know this history. And he's saying, we've got something to learn from it. They grumbled. They disobeyed. They violated God's laws, and they paid all these prices again and again for it. Don't do that. And by the way, don't think you're so proud that you're incapable of falling. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What was one of our lessons? God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's a good verse to memorize, by the way. That's a good one. That uh, we can remind ourselves when it comes to temptation that we don't have to fall to that temptation. We can actually say, Lord, help me. He provides a way of escape. It might be someone sitting in a pew across from you that you call on and say, I'm tempted, brother. I'm tempted, sister. And they can encourage you. But the pride of life is, I can't fall. I've arrived. I'm too far along this path of Christianity. I'm, I'm past those things I used to do, and that's a dangerous thought. Take heed. Therefore, my beloved, flee, from idolatry. I speak as two sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then he starts talking about communion. The the time we take, we do it every first Sunday of the month. But the, the ordinance that Jesus started, he says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? And the blood of Christ. And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he Now, a lot of times you've probably heard that portion I just read along with your communion reflection as a pastor has maybe has led you through a time of communion or an elder. And you, you've, you're familiar with that. But now that we've seen it all together in context, remember where it started. Paul was writing that we have a lesson to learn as we look back at the biblical narratives such as we're reading in Deuteronomy. We have lessons to learn And a negative example in many cases. Don't go that way. Don't disbelieve God. His promises are true. Look at the consequences of not going into the promised land. Of wimping out and saying, oh, we've only seen this many miracles. And we haven't seen quite enough to put faith in us. We talked about that a little bit the last couple weeks. It's It's a hard thing to imagine. These are the people who saw what we watched, we watched the old Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, and back then that was pretty good special effects, you know. And you'd say, Wow, that's amazing. These are the same people that saw all of that. And God said, Here's your land, go in and get it. Oh, but there's big guys in there, they're scary. And we laugh and we chuckle, and I do too. I was just sharing with someone this morning, the first time I ever decided to just start writing, writing through, reading through the whole Bible from front to back, uh, some many years ago, I kept saying, oh, how could these people of Israel never learn their lesson? How could they? It's like this constant cycle, obedience and blessing, disobedience and curse. Drawing them back into repentance, back into the way of living they're supposed to, and what do they do? As soon as they get the blessing again, then they start to disobey again, and it's the cycle, the cycle, the cycle. And I looked at that, and I read chapter after chapter of scripture, telling us. I'd think to myself, "Man, these people just couldn't get it." Now I realize I'm not that much different. He's given us the blessings of salvation. He's lavished his mercy on us, Ephesians 1. And yet sometimes we say, oh, I'm not sure if I believe the promise anymore. Now the world is really crazy right now and it doesn't seem like God is in control and we could easily do the same. Take heed, Paul said, lest you should fall. So as I close this message this morning, Again, I know that probably a lot of us are going to forget some of the names and the people groups and the history. Some of you are nerds like me and may be more interested in that. But I want you to leave here with two main thoughts. God is faithful and God is sovereign and he's in control. And we can trust his word because he's proven it true again and again and again. And take heed lest you be one of those people who says, well, I need one more proof. God, could you give me one more miracle? Could you answer one more prayer? And then I'll be really strong in my belief. Well, there's a danger in that, isn't there? Do you remember the parable Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus? This guy that uh, went to hell. And Lazarus was this poor begging guy that was sick all the time. And he... He never got anything good in life and he went to heaven and they have this discussion between Abraham and, and uh, this rich man and he says, oh, well, send him back to talk to my brothers. He's like, well, he, he, they have Moses and the law. Oh, but, but if you send someone back, then they'll believe and, and what's the answer? If they didn't believe Moses, they wouldn't even believe a risen man coming back. If your belief this morning is waning or it's weak. And you know, I used to have stronger faith in what happened to it. You have a gracious God who can restore that faith to you again. And so you need to ask him and say, Lord, would you restore unto me that faith? Bring it back, Lord. Let me not be one of those who grumble and put you to the test and say one more miracle. But we know that even our faith is a gift. As someone reminded me this morning in our prayer group, we don't even produce our own faith. It's a gift from God, lest any of us shall boast. So let's remember that God God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will keep his word, and we can trust in that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And as we leave here, may our spirits be encouraged with a